We all want to drink from the same cup of justice, and it starts with learning about our legal system. With tales from the newsroom and the courtroom, journalist Liz Farrell, attorney Eric Bland, and I invite you to gain knowledge, insights, and tools to hold public agencies and officials accountable. You will love our Cup of Justice shows on the new feed. We know that our justice systems are intimidating, but we all have to encounter it at one point. Together, our hosts create the perfect trifecta of legal expertise, journalistic integrity, and a fire lit to expose the truth wherever it leads. Search for Cup of Justice wherever you get your podcast, or visit cupofjusticepod.com. I don't know if a Colleton County jury will ultimately convict Alec Murdoch of murdering his wife and son. But every day of the trial, we are getting more confidence in the prosecution as they carefully present an apparent mountain of evidence, piece by piece. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been covering the Murdoch family for almost four years now. This is another special episode of the Murdoch Murders podcast, live from Walterboro, as the Murdoch Murders trial is underway. MMP is produced by my husband, David Moses, and written by my best friend, the extremely talented Liz Farrell. Here we are in week two of Alec Murdoch's double murder trial. Before we start, Our whole team just wanted to say thank you again to our fans. We were absolutely stunned this week when we launched Cup of Justice on its own feed and it landed in the number one spot on Apple. That is a big deal. I literally still can't believe it, but I know it is only possible because of you, our amazing listeners and fans. And to the MMP Premium community, Liz and I were just talking about how much more interesting and encouraging covering this trial is with the help of y'all. In a lot of ways, watching this trial live with the MMP community feels like being in a newsroom again. We are learning so much with y'all as the trial unfolds, and I'm just loving watching this community grow every single day. So obviously a lot has happened since we last talked with y'all. More than a dozen witnesses have testified for the prosecution so far, almost all of them law enforcement officers. And we're not going to lie, it's been slow going at times. The prosecution is continuing to lay its foundation by entering an exhaustive amount of evidence onto the record. That can sometimes be tedious, and I'm sure it's putting some jurors to sleep. It is really important, though, and we have to give credit to Creighton Waters for his thoroughness. So this trial was scheduled to last three weeks, but it seems like there's a pretty good chance it'll go longer. We've been told by someone with knowledge of the case to expect at least five weeks. The good news is that we've been finding out so much more about the investigation into the murders of Maggie and Paul. As you know, we have been on the lookout from the very beginning for anything that calls into question the integrity of the crime scene, meaning the very preventable seeming mistakes that end up weighing in Alec's favor. 
We know how deep the family ties are to law enforcement. And we know that at the time of the murders, Ellick and others were under investigation for obstruction of justice in the 2019 boat crash involving Paul Murdoch. As our Cup of Justice co-host Eric Bland has noted before, there is no such thing as a perfectly processed crime scene. Defense attorneys will always find fault in the collection of evidence. But the point is that we don't want law enforcement making it easy for them. So, not unexpectedly, there have been some disappointing moments related to the crime scene testimony. But so far, it's not as bad as we feared it would have been given how many times we've heard people who know the family speculate or joke about the potential manipulation of the scene. To be clear, we are not suggesting the crime scene was manipulated in any way. And this is not a statement of Ellick's guilt or innocence. This is, and has always been, about the justice system here and how it seems to bow and curtsy for the powerful, especially in these parts, for the Murdoch family. As far as that mission goes, it has been really gratifying to finally get answers to so many of the questions we've had over the past year and a half. We'll get into that more in a little bit. But let's start with the defense, Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin. The talking heads on TV seem to mostly agree that Dick and Jim are legal heroes who are landing major blows in the state's case against Ellick. We see things a little differently, or a lot differently, actually. There have been successes for Dick and Jim, though. The first is that it seems like there's a good number of people who believe that Ellick's attorneys have raised major questions about how law enforcement handled this scene. Like everything else in this case, it depends on how you look at it. The way we look at it is this. Dick and Jim have been effective in confusing matters and misleading the jury and the public because of how they've been asking their questions. This is their job. This is what Ellick or whoever is paying them to do. So for instance, we've been asked a lot about why investigators never searched the house at Moselle. Before we get too far from that sentence, this is not true. Investigators did search the house. The reason some members of the public think this, though, is because Dick and Jim asked investigators whose responsibilities that night did not include searching the house whether they had searched the house. The answer was always predictably no, which looks bad because the average person doesn't necessarily understand that all law enforcement officers are not also homicide investigators. This apples and oranges line of questioning is expected, but it has been a learning experience for us to see how well it has been working sometimes. In addition to their attempts to get evidence excluded, Dick and Jim's main goal right now seems to be to confuse the jury, as we said, but also to get jurors to ask themselves whether there could have been two shooters, whether law enforcement did screw up the scene to the point of unreliability, and whether investigators there had zeroed in on Ellick from the very beginning, and therefore were sloppy about collecting evidence of a potential other shooter, such as tire tracks and footprints. Perhaps the two biggest points the defense has scored so far were with Special Agent Worley, a footprint and tire tread expert at SLED, who was awesome. She did great, until the end. Turns out SLED did not include a ruler in their photos of potential footprints. That ruler is important because it shows scale. Also, one of the investigators left a bloody footprint in the feed room where Paul was killed, and that's not good. 
It's things like this that create a potential for reasonable doubt. Back to the tire track evidence real quick. This is another thing that doesn't add up. Dick and Jim want to exploit the fact that a first responder didn't photograph tire tracks he noticed. But it's also important to know that even though Ellick told that first responder that he had only pulled into the areas by the kennels one time, that isn't correct. Ellick, according to his own accounts, went to the kennels, saw that they were dead, and then went to the house where he called 911. Then he went back to the kennels. That's at least two times offering a possible explanation for the other sets of tire tracks that the first responder did not photograph. But it's things like this that end up in the headlines without the full context. Like we said though, we have been overwhelmingly impressed with the witnesses so far. They come off as knowledgeable and fair and most have been able to hold their own on cross-examination. Where Dick and Jim have lost points is in their attempts to get evidence excluded. On Tuesday, they moved to exclude testimony from SLED's phone data expert about Maggie's and Paul's cell phone, and they fought it hard. Judge Newman denied their motion, though. Also, while they continue to insist that Ellick was unfairly targeted by SLED, that investigators were aggressively focused on him from the beginning, the evidence continues to show that investigators handled Ellick as gently as they would have a fuzzy baby lamb. We'll share those interviews with you in a bit. Now, one interesting thing we've been noticing is that while Dick and Jim have been challenging the integrity of the investigation from the standpoint of law enforcement, they don't seem to have a problem with the fact that one of Ellick's coworkers at the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office was the one to download the data from Ellick's phone, or the fact that certain members of the non-law enforcement community were at the crime scene. Nope, they don't have a problem with that. In fact, it kind of seems like Dick and Jim threw those guys a bone. So from what we heard before the trial, Moselle was a real who's who on the night of the murders and in the days after. Turns out that was true. After Ellick called 911, it seemed that every partner at PMPED showed up. Sled agent Jeff Croft testified this week that investigators not only had to work around the litany of PMPED attorneys who were at the scene for whatever reason, he indicated that some of those attorneys actually played some sort of role in the collection of evidence. Here is Jim Griffin's cross-examination of Special Agent Croft on Tuesday morning. On the 8th, um, you were asked to point out, who's that person? Who's that person? Who's that person? That's Ronnie Crosby. He's a lawyer. That's Mark Ball. He's a lawyer. That's uh, Lee Cope. He's a lawyer. Do you remember that testimony? I do, sir. Now, Alec wasn't lawyering up on the 8th. Those were his friends who came over to help him. Correct? They, they were given counsel to Alec as far as uh, what we were doing. They were making phone calls to his counsel. Uh, that was the instruction which, which we gave. We were given and they were assisting you, as you saw on the, the body cam, go through the evidence that you ended up seizing in the gun room, right? They pointed out some items uh, that they had concerns about. Did you find that their efforts were obstructing your investigation? They didn't obstruct our, our search within that 
Gun room, no, sir. Now, you tell me, would any other man out there who has returned home to find his wife and son murdered, who claim to have checked their pulses, and who claim to have tried to move one of their bodies, despite the fact that he appeared to be completely clean, with no blood or dirt on him, who, in the words of Creighton Waters, not only told anyone who would listen that this had to be related to the boat crash, those were among the first words out of his mouth. Would any other man like that be allowed to have his non-law enforcement officer co-workers walking around the crime scene and weighing in on the evidence collection? I think you know the answer to that. Now, the prosecution. Let's talk about how they are doing so far. And where to start? Well, there's been a lot of big Creighton energy. Every day, Creighton has come in strong and has done a great job on redirect, especially cleaning up on a lot of the confusion Dick and Jim have been trying to create. One of Creighton's bigger shining moments was on Monday, when he methodically entered into the record a veritable arsenal from the Murdoch's gun room, as well as a long list of ammunition. Dick and Jim did not like this one bit and tried to get Judge Newman to stop it, claiming it was unfairly prejudicial. Judge Newman disagreed and allowed it after Creighton threw it in the defense's face that the evidence was necessary to show that counter to their claims, investigators did do a thorough job at the scene. After all the guns and ammo were logged, Creighton then played a chilling interview with Ellick from June 10th, 2021, three days after the murders in the day that Randolph Murdoch died. All of that information about the guns started to make sense. But stick a pin in this for now. We'll get back to that in a second. For this, we have to start at the beginning. The evidence really speaks for itself. So we're going to play some of the recordings of Ellick on the day of and in the days after the murders, starting with the unredacted 911 call that we've never heard before. This call was played for the jury last Thursday. The original call that was released by law enforcement had several parts with long gaps. It wasn't clear what exactly had been redacted back then. Now, we have a better idea of what we were missing in the summer of 2021 when this was first released to the public. The audio on the recording is really hard to hear, so we'll just summarize this with some bullet points. Right away, the dispatcher asks Ellick whether Maggie and or Paul shot themselves. He answers, hell no. This is interesting because how does he know this? Later, SLED agents, wanting to verify that Paul didn't kill Maggie and then himself, looked under Paul to see if he had fallen on a weapon. At this point, according to Ellick, he had found his wife and son's bodies, checked their pulses, and tried to turn Paul over but couldn't. Meaning if there was a gun under Paul, Ellick couldn't have known that unless he knew how they died. Also knew, the dispatcher asked Ellick not to have a gun with him. It sounds like he slowly said, I will not do that. This becomes confusing later when she tells him to make sure his gun is put away when the officers get there. One interpretation of this moment when she asked him not to have a gun there is that the dispatcher was reminding him that there's a killer on the loose. 
He does not express fear for his own life nor confusion about what happened. It's also not clear why he went to the house before calling 911 after allegedly discovering the bodies at the kennels. Was it to get a gun? Was the gun already in his vehicle? This might be important because the prosecution has indicated that there was biological evidence in Ellick's suburban. Did it get in there after Ellick found the bodies? Or did it get in there on the drive to his mother's house? Finally, during the 911 call, Ellick first floated the boat crash theory. Unprompted, he told the dispatcher that Paul was being threatened. She asked for a name and he could not give her one. She asked him if he has reported these threats, and Alex says yes. And we will be right back. Thank you for listening to the Murdoch Murders podcast, the show that started it all. These 93 episodes will take you on a journey of twists and turns, ups and downs, tears and belly laughs. In this first podcast, we expose the truth wherever it leads, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. We continue this mission with our newest evolution, True Sunlight. Luna Shark's True Sunlight podcast is the antithesis of true crime. True Sunlight values accuracy over access journalism. True Sunlight is shed with empathy, not exploitation. True Sunlight is the intersection of journalism, true crime, and systemic corruption. We continue to shed light on Stephen Smith's case and Alex Murdoch's co-conspirators, but also we like to take deep dives into other cases around the country. True Sunlight empowers listeners to understand their legal and judicial systems with our unique brand of pesky journalism. Listen to True Sunlight wherever you get your podcast, or visit truesunlight.com to learn more. So a few hours after the 911 call, Ellick then met with Colleton County Sheriff's Office Detective Laura Rutland. Like we said in Cup of Justice, we felt like Detective Rutland was one of the strongest witnesses for the prosecution so far. Rutland is an officer with the Colleton County Sheriff's Office who assisted SLED on the night Maggie and Paul were killed. According to Rutland, Ellick appeared to be wet and sweating, but his clothes were dry. He also appeared to be clean, with no blood on him, after he said that he checked Paul for Paul and Maggie's pulses. I want to play this clip from court because it was powerful. Now, when you were at the scene, when you first got there, did you see any footprints in the blood? No. Did you see any knee prints in the blood? No. How would you describe the defendant's hands when you saw him when you were interviewing him? How would you describe his hands? They were clean. Clean. How would you describe his arms? They were clean. How would you describe his t-shirt? Clean. How would you describe his shorts? Clean. How would you describe his shoes? They were clean. Clean, meaning suspiciously clean. Too clean. If he checked their pulses and tried to move Paul, where was the blood? But the most captivating part of her testimony came when they played the audio recording of Ellick's initial interview with police. 
we learned that PMPD attorney Danny Henderson was representing Ellick on the night of June 7th. He was in the car with Brutland and SLED and SLED agent David Owen. I have to wonder if Danny knew about the PMPD confrontation that day on June 7th while he was representing Ellick. Was he sitting there thinking, hmm, this must be a coincidence? Something I want to note before we play this interview. While trying to convey to the jury that SLED zeroed in on Alec Murdoch and had tunnel vision throughout their investigation, Dick describes SLED as aggressive while interviewing Alec. So I ask you, does this sound like an aggressive police interview? All right. Um, as I stated, I'm David Owen and uh, Laura Rutland with Colleton County, and I'm with SLED. <laughs> I hate to have to do this. I understand. Yeah. I totally yeah. understand. Yeah. So you don't you don't have any problem yeah. with it. So um, just start the to top. Take your time. Um, like when I came back here, mm -hmm. I mean, I pulled up and I could see him, and you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. <laughs> my my boy over there, I could see. With his lawyer and Detective Rutland sitting behind him in the back seat, Alec launches right into his story. And I ran over to Maggie, and uh, actually, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. Um, uh, you know, I tried to turn him over, and uh, I don't know, I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started try to do something with it thinking maybe but then I put it back down really quickly um, then I went to my wife and I, I mean I could see mm -hmm. mm. notice he said the cell phone popped out of his pocket Alec then very graphically described Paul's injuries which I don't think are necessary to air but listen to the language that Alec uses here did you touch Maggie at all? I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take, I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, mm -hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I called 911 um, pretty much right away, and she was very good. Um <clears throat> I talked to her. Um, I told her I was going to get off the phone to call some family members. <coughs> I did that. Um, Can you hear the lawyer in him? As limited as possible. Granted, he is in shock, but it's odd. And again, he's telling the police this while he's wearing a shirt that simply does not match his story. What made you come out here tonight? Um... I went to my mom's a late stage Alzheimer's patient. My dad's in the hospital. Um, my mom gets anxious when she does. I went to check on them and Maggie. Maggie's a dog lover. Okay. She fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's <clears throat> for just a little while. Tried to call her when I left. Texted her. No response. Um, 
He said, I was at the house when Maggie was at the kennels. This is hugely problematic because the prosecution played audio in court where Ellick's voice can be heard at 8.44 p.m., just minutes before Paul and Maggie were murdered. This was a big moment in court that we will unpack later. But I have to ask this. Why would he lie to police about being near the murder victims moments before they were murdered? When I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. Paul was um, going to be getting set up to plant. Our sunflower seeds got sprayed and died and he was refiguring to do to plant the sunflower seeds. So I came back up here and I drove up and saw and called. Alec then was asked about relationships with Maggie and Paul. He said him and Maggie had a wonderful relationship and it will be interesting to see if any witnesses can testify to that. He also said that his relationship with Paul was as good as it could be. Then, Ellick floated the boat crash theory again. This is important because this theory that the murders were an act of revenge for Mallory Beach's death spread quickly after the murders and made it to mainstream media. Have y'all been having any problems out here? Trespassers? None people that, breaking in? None that I know of. The only thing that what comes to my mind is my son Paul was in a boat wreck uh, a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and there's been a, you know, he was charged with being uh, arrested for being the driver. There's been a lot of negative publicity about that, and there's been a lot of people online just really vile stuff. But when Paul's out and about, I mean, people routinely, I don't think I know the full story, um, so I don't think they give it to me, but I mean, He's been punched and hit and just attacked a lot. So, you know, but I mean, nothing like this. Yeah. Any, any one person in particular or group of people? I don't know. That you could think of? Not that I know, no, sir. Has he, other than being assaulted, has he received any direct threats related to the boat accident? Oh, yes. All the time he gets recently. Um, yes, sir. I mean, he gets them all the time. Okay. He gets them all the time. What kind of, I mean, I'm gonna kick your ass, you know, I've never been privy firsthand, Mm -hmm. you know, um, is that through social media or no, ma'am. It's mostly like if, if he goes out places is what, you know what he goes out like somewhere he's in college so if he goes out is what i understand Mm -hmm. i can find out better details from some of his younger friends on that so notice here that ella can't name any specific threats about the boat crash and he said no ma'am when asked if there's anything on social media which he knows is easy to reference he then said that the threats were more like he would go out sometimes and come back with a black eye and tell his parents that it was because of the boat crash. And I want to say something here because context is everything in this case. Alec Murdoch sued people for a living. I have a hard time 
thinking that the Murdochs would actually sit back and casually accept their son getting assaulted without reporting it and filing a personal injury lawsuit. Then, Alec pointed police in another odd direction. He said that the groundskeeper recently told Paul a very weird story about working with undercover Navy SEALs to, checks notes, kill Black Panthers. It was really bizarre, and I'm not even going to play the whole thing because it's a waste of time. So Alec told police about how he spoke to the groundskeeper on the phone that night, which the defense told us about in a previous alibi statement. The groundskeeper is on the witness list, and I sure do hope we can hear what was said on that phone call. Alec told police that the groundskeeper was off of work that day. Yeah, and I sent him a message to text me earlier today about sunflowers, and he called me back when I was on the way to my mom's house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you talk to him at that time? Briefly, I was on the phone with a lawyer friend of mine named Chris Wilson from Bamberg, so I told him I'd call him back okay. tomorrow, see him in the morning. Wow. Really interesting that he brought up Chris Wilson to police. This shows how confident Alec was in himself at the time. Chris likely knew that something was up with Alec at this point, that Alec had misappropriated fees from PMPD. Chris says that he was fooled, but he likely knew that those missing fees were being questioned by PMPD. So why would Alec point police to Chris Wilson like that. Speaking of, we learned in testimony this week that Chris Wilson was on scene the day after the murders in the gun room at Moselle while sled agents were processing evidence. Several PMPD partners were there at the same time, including Ronnie Crosby, who knew about the confrontation of PMPD that day and knew that they had been asking Alec for the missing fees, that Alec owed PMPD for the case that he split with Chris Wilson. How did all of these guys on scene, who shouldn't have been there in the first place, by the way, not put two and two together? Missing fees, confrontation, Alec's money problems, then Alec's two family members were suddenly murdered? And did any of them tell police about this? This is what I really want to know, as it looks like Newman is going to allow evidence of the financial crimes into trial. Were the PMPD partners and Chris Wilson honest and forthcoming about what they knew? So back to the interview. The sled agent then asks Alec about weapons that they store, and Alec explains that they have an arsenal of guns at Moselle. And the, the shotgun that you had when deputies pulled up, where did that gun come from? I went to the house and I got a gun, probably overreacting, but... And was that when you pulled up and saw them? No, I, I mean, I came out and, I mean, I called 911 first. Mm -hmm. Talked to them for a little while and then I told her. You told her? That I was that I was going to go to the house okay. and that I would let authorities know when they got here that I had a gun. Okay. I want to point out that Alec is saying here that he found his wife and son brutally murdered on his very large and very dark hunting lodge. And he said that he was probably overreacting 
when he grabbed a gun for protection. The officer then asked Ellick about Maggie and Paul's schedules that day. What was their schedule today? When did they get home? My son works for my brother, and he was coming home to deal with the sunflowers. Um, uh, he got here. Uh, he got here pretty early because he and I rode around looking at everything for a good little while, probably 45 minutes to an hour. Um, Maggie had things she did in Charleston, and um, she had a doctor's appointment in Charleston. And she got back here. It was fairly late. Was it dark yet when Paul got home? No, Paul got home early. Early, okay. So before our dinner time? Before... Oh, yes, ma'am. So, there was a Snapchat video recorded on Paul's phone at 7.56 p.m. showing Alec at Moselle. That video is important because of what Alec is wearing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So back to the interview, the sled agent asked Alec a question a lot of you have had. Were there any cameras at Moselle? And of course, Ellick has a vague answer. Do you have any cameras on your property? I have deer cameras, but none, you know, around up here. Where are they at? On, on different deer stands. Okay, so deep in the woods. Well, not necessarily deep in the mm -hmm. woods. Some of them are in fields and... Okay. Um, but I don't... There's none that you know, are near here. Okay. Huh. Convenient. Also, if they really didn't have any security cameras to protect any of their property, that shows that they weren't concerned at all about intruders. And that speaks to the power that they had. Finally, the officers asked about what Ellick did that day. But he conveniently left out a big part of his day the PMPD confrontation. What did you do today? Were you at the office or? Nope, I was home. I came home, Paul and I messed around. I, I, uh, I was up at the house. I laid down, took a nap on the couch, probably, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. I got up, I called Maggie, didn't get an answer. And I left to go to my mom's. She had said she might ride with me, but she normally doesn't when I go over there. Um, and I think I texted her. And she's very good about answering the phone, so that was odd, or calling me back. Mm -hmm. So that was odd, but it wasn't that big a deal. Now, what time was that? What, what time was what? That you sent her a text message. I checked, texted her at 9.08, going to check on M, be right back. And then I texted her at 9.47. That must be when I started to come back. I think I called her before that. But let me make sure. Uh, pretty sure that I called her 
and then I tried Paul and then no I think that was riding I think that might have been riding over there so select Lieutenant Britt Dove testified about the phone data this week in court, and it sort of matches what Alec is saying about his communications. Maggie's last text was at 8.49 p.m. Her phone's last recorded steps were at 8.55 p.m. Her phone changed orientation, meaning it moved, at 9.06 p.m., the exact time Alec started up his Suburban to head to his mother's home. And seconds after Maggie's phone orientation changed, she missed a call from Alec Murdoch. And at 9.08 p.m., she got a text from Alec saying, going to check on M, be right back. Alec called her again, and she didn't answer. Then, Alec texted Maggie Murdoch for the last time at 9.47 p.m. Call me, babe. It was never read. Chilling, right? Also, Dove's testimony never mentioned that Alec tried to communicate with Paul during that time frame. But Dove did tell us about the last text messages that Paul Murdoch sent. He was texting with a girl who he was going to the movies with. She said that she didn't want to see a sad movie. Paul wanted to see A Star Is Born. No, I need something happy, she said. It was the last text he ever read. Also chilling, that same agent testified that Alec had two phones and his calls appeared to be deleted between June 4th and 10.25 p.m. on June 7th, 2021. We'll be right back. Alec's second interview with law enforcement was on June 10th, 2021, the same day his father, Randolph Murdoch III, died. This interview was conducted before his death at John Marvin's Hunting Grounds in Barnwell County. Sled agents David Owen and Jeff Croft took Alec into a sled vehicle and interviewed him there. Attorney Jim Griffin, Paul's lawyer at the time, by the way, was in the car representing Alec. As Eric Bland has pointed out, Jim Griffin probably should not have allowed Ellick to sit for this or any other interview with law enforcement. At the same time Ellick was being interviewed here, Randy Murdoch, John Marvin Murdoch, and Buster Murdoch were in separate vehicles with sled agents also being interviewed and asked for their phones. Ellick's interview started off in typical Ellick style with him on the phone. When he gets off the phone, Sled asks Alec for details about his day before discovering his wife's and son's bodies. He again does not mention the confrontation over the missing $792,000 fee at PMPED earlier that day. Nor does he mention his father's health, which is the reason he left PMPED, which is supposedly the reason he left PMPED earlier that day, right in the middle of the confrontation. Instead, he seems to have drawn a blank about what his Monday was like. <clears throat> All right. Um, so when we spoke the other night, I got kind of a basic overview. Yes, sir. Um, and it was pretty traumatic. That's okay. Um, yeah. I, I know so, you yeah. need to ask me. You ask me what you need to. So I just I, I want you to let's start Monday morning and and take me through your day. 
Monday morning, uh, you know, did I do Monday morning? Um, my wife and my older son had gone to the baseball games that weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I really can't remember what I did Monday. I know I went to work, but yeah. you know, I think I was dragging a little bit from the weekend mm -hmm. and, but I went to work. Um, I usually mess around on my farm. And then I go to work. Um, I was at work. Uh -huh. um, you know. Were you at the office in Hampton? Or? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. So I was at my office in Hampton. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I was just at my office doing. Legal work. Yes, sir. I'm sure I can go back and probably recreate some specifics mm -hmm. if you need me to, but. I can't like sit here and recall on the top of my head exactly what I was working on. I know one thing I was working on um, was we had some we had some big motions coming up in a um, Dominion Energy case. I was getting ready for those, and uh, I was getting ready for some motions. I'm a defendant in a civil case involving my son. I told you about mm -hmm. the boat wreck. Yes, sir. And there were some motions coming up in that on Thursday and I was mostly just getting ready for those things and okay. then this was in response to a question as to what he was doing the day of the murders that is correct yes sir and he said he was working on some motions in the Dominion Energy case and then also where he's a personally a defendant in the boat case is that correct that is correct that's yes, what sir. he said he was doing the day of the murders is that right that is correct yes sir. thank you other jump uh, what time did you leave the house to go to the office I'm not sure uh, okay. who, who all was at the house when you left To go to my office yes. that morning or when you got up who was at the house i'm sure my wife was um and i can't remember if blanca had made it out there yet or not and who was blanca blanca is our housekeeper okay okay and she comes mm -hmm. different she doesn't have set hours but she comes most days um she'll be able to tell you if i yeah. was there when when i when she left or not okay. I, I just i can't remember and so you, you went to the office, you did, you know, some motions. Uh, what time did you leave the office? What was the name of the housekeeper? Blanca. Yeah. And when, when, I, when she left or not, okay. I, I just I can't remember. And so you, you went to the office, you did, you know, some motions. Uh, what time did you leave the office? I left a little bit earlier than normal because my son Paul was coming home. Okay. Um, because he had not been with us uh, during the weekend and he was coming home. We were going to, um, we were going to replant some sunflowers the next day. Okay. And so he was calibrating, doing and getting everything ready. Um, so he got home a little early. I left a little early. So he and I could knock around and we knocked around for, you know, just doing things we like to do out there. Okay. You know, we're riding around looking at, um, um, food plots looking, you know, look, looking for hogs, a little bit of target shooting, just bullshit. Yeah.
While playing this interview for the jury, Creighton would stop it every now and again to ask Special Agent Croft to clarify or repeat what he heard Alex say. It is around this point that Creighton stopped the recording with Croft to ask him to repeat what Alec was doing with Paul that afternoon. Then Creighton asked, do people often use 300 blackouts to shoot hogs? Croft said they do. This is when Creighton started to place the rifle that the state says killed Maggie near or with Alec on the day of the murders. We'll talk more about that in a second. Here, Alec starts to build a timeline for SLED. He says Paul got to the house around 5 p.m. and the two rode around for about 20 to 30 minutes or maybe an hour. So after y'all got finished riding around, try to take me through the rest of the evening. All right. Um, you know, at some point we were all back at the house together. Mm -hmm. um, Maggie had gotten home and, you know, we sat down and we ate supper, which we usually eat supper together. Um, so um, the one thing I remember, I don't know how much detail y'all want. So if I start talking about something that, you don't need just tell me and i'll move to something else the, the more detail the better sir. so paul has been having um high blood pressure mm -hmm. and his mama was worried sick about it so we were actually you know this was a, a direct thing getting him he doesn't like to go to doctors making him go get his blood pressure checked his feet had swollen up recently wow so you know that was it was a, it was a, a big huge deal okay uh you know we hung around the house for a little while uh i know that maggie went to the kennels um i don't know exactly where paul went but he left the house too okay how did maggie get down to the kennels i don't know exactly but on normal occasions she would drive drive a buggy drive a four-wheeler or very common for her to walk okay how about Paul? What's... Paul wasn't much of a walker, but he would use all of the others. Okay. Um, but, it, it, I mean, it could be anyway, okay. you know? I'm, I don't know exactly. <clears throat> I wish I could help you with that. So, so they left and went down to the kennels? Well, Maggie went to go to the kennels. Okay, Paul, and Paul left. And I'm assuming, you know, I'm assuming Paul left okay. because of, you know, Gotcha. What happened? I mean, I'm assuming Paul yeah, yeah. went to the kennels. Okay. Um, and what did you do once once Maggie and Paul left? I stayed in the house. What did he tell you he did after Maggie and Paul went to the kennels? He stayed in the house. This is a big deal. Again, Ella insisted he was not at the kennels that night. It wasn't until Sled was able to crack Paul's phone that they found out this was a lie. And when I say lie, I mean lie. Dick and Jim are almost laughing off this discrepancy as a minor issue. So what? A man who just lost his family isn't going to remember the timeline perfectly. And that's true. And understandable. But this isn't just a matter of forgetting that you went outside to talk to your husband before cooking dinner and having a normal night together. Alec doesn't just say he wasn't at the kennels. He appears to be concocting an entire reality about how Maggie and Paul were there, but he was not. I mean, I'm assuming Paul yeah, yeah. went to the kennels. Okay. Um, and what did you do once, once Maggie and Paul left? I stayed in the house. Okay. And I was watching TV, 
looking at my phone, and I actually fell asleep on the couch. Okay. And what time did you? You know, I don't know wake up? exactly what time I woke up, but when y'all get my phone, you know, I think one of the first things I did when I got up was call Maggie mm-hmm. because I was going to my mom's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I texted her because I checked my phone. And what time did we say the text was, Jim? Like 9.06? I, don't, I didn't see it. Yeah, I, I got it written down from the other I night. I showed you the other yes, night, yes, didn't I? Yes, sir. I got this. So, you know, I texted her. So I called her just before that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she she didn't answer at that point. Um, and I left to go to my mom's. Okay. Y'all just have to look. I, I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure if I called Paul. Well, or not. And, and that and that's why we're getting the phone so we can nail down the times and, right. and and everything. Next, Alec tells Sled that he thought he heard Maggie and Paul pull up to the house, introducing the idea that maybe what he was hearing was the real killer. But then it gets kind of weird. First, he admits that people don't just come to Moselle randomly. And second, he suggests that maybe instead of Maggie and Paul pulling up, it was a wildcat that hangs out on the property. The thing to understand here is that after 9.02 p.m., Alec began calling Maggie frantically, five times in an hour. He also texted her. So after thinking he heard them pull up and seeing that they hadn't, and then not being able to get them on the phone, he drives past the kennels to his mother's house without stopping to check in. Uh, but I really don't think, you know, I'm just throwing that yeah, out no, there no, because it was in my mind. Yeah, no, that's fine. All that's, right. that's totally fine. I left. I drove to, I drove to my mom's. Um, I she, checked on my mom. She lives mom. right out here. Correct. She, she lives at Almeda. Okay. Checked on my mom. Talked with Shelly for a few minutes. You know, um, so Shelly is the caregiver. Okay. So. All right. So where are we? All right. You, so you, then you I left, left your mom's, mom's and making phone calls. I left my mom's and I, I went back home. I got to the house. Uh, I went inside. Nobody was there. I got in the car. I went back to the kennels and, you know. And you, when you went back to the kennels, besides Maggie and Paul, did you see anybody, any cars? I didn't see take, anything take right then, no, sir. Take your time. You know, I saw Maggie and I saw Paul laying down. I knew, you know, I didn't know, you know, I knew it was bad. I went over there and, you know, I saw it. Yeah. And, you know, I called 911. Okay. And what, what made you decide to go back to the house and get a gun? I, I, I just think the whole scene had me freaked out. Okay. Did you, you take your car back up there? Or did you run up there? No, I drove. Okay. The Murdochs were known for driving around with shotguns in their trucks, so it's surprising to hear that Alec had to return to the house to get a gun. It is also surprising that he wouldn't have thought to bring a gun with him in the first place because it was now after 10 p.m., and according to him, he had not seen or heard from Maggie or Paul since before his TV couch nap. Moselle is very remote, and it is very dark outside at night. It's almost absurd to believe that he came home, saw that the house wasn't lit up, saw at least Maggie's car, and that Maggie and Paul were not there, and didn't think to grab a gun before heading down to the kennels. 
Again, there is no right way for someone to react to the horrific and violent loss of family members, but Alex's casual conclusion of he got the gun because the whole scene had him freaked out feels like the same kind of understatement he made to Detective Rutland two days earlier when he told her that he got the gun from the house and that might have been an overreaction. Next, Sled asks Alec what Paul was like as a son. I can tell you this, in riding around with Paul, he was his normal bright, you know, just, he was a really great kid. So being a dad myself, what was the biggest issue you had with Paul when you had, when you had to call him down and, and scold him or correct him? What was the biggest issue you had with Paul? You know, uh, I mean, I, irresponsibility, you know, um, he was ADHD. He was bad about jumping from, and he had so many wonderful qualities now, mm -hmm. but he was bad about jumping from, he'd start this, maybe not quite finish it, move, do something else. And, you know, you'll find out from his friends, he had clothes strung out all over the state. He did that with clothes. He did that with guns. He did that with my boats. Awesome. So he lost weight. He he would misplace stuff or just okay. you know, leave stuff behind, right? Yes, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, he would go off for the weekend. Sometimes he wouldn't pack clothes because he's got clothes in somebody's house. I mean, Paul. Paul was one. He like he he wouldn't understand mm -hmm. how you go out. You know, you and one you and a girl go out on a date. He mm -hmm. he 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 liked the crowd. <laughs> Who was his girlfriend? He didn't have a girlfriend right now. Okay. Alec tells Sled that Maggie usually cooks for him and the boys, but that she had their housekeeper Blanca make dinner that night. And he says that Maggie and he never argue. According to sources with direct connections to the family, Alec had a horrible temper. And over the years, his fights with Maggie had sometimes been known to get physical. How is your relationship with Maggie? Very good. As good as it could possibly be. I mean, you know, we yeah. had our issues, but wonderful. And I'm just trying to understand the family dynamic. I understand you got to do what yeah. you got to do. I promise. What was y'all's biggest arguments? Would, would what your biggest are the things that y'all would argue about the most? What would they be over? I mean, we really didn't argue, but the basic, I'd say the really the only thing that caused any friction between us is she was always wanting us to go. And I love her in-laws. I mean, they're wonderful people. I love them to death. She was always wanting to go there, stay there a little longer than me and the boys wanted to stay. That was really, and, and it really, you know, she'd get really, she'd get ticked off. Yeah. You mean her family? You said yeah. her in-laws. You mean her family? I mean her yeah. family. I mean, we really didn't argue about much. We didn't have much to argue about. I mean, I'm sure there was an occasional thing that came up that we argued about, but mm -hmm. I can't tell you what it is. I can't think of it. <clears throat>
Yeah. make sure she took care of me and the boys and I mean she did everything <clears throat> she did absolutely everything <clears throat> I'm sorry no no you have every right to do that <clears throat> I'm good you go ahead <clears throat> that afternoon or during the time you were you and uh, Paul were right. Yes, sir. Uh, did y'all did you go up to around the kennels or anything? Did y'all do anything uh, up toward the kennels? I'm sure we did. You know, my that's our main shop is you know right there. But you know, I mean, we're normally in there for long times tinkering, and I will say that particular day we we did not tinker around there a bunch you know okay. when y'all rode around the farm what were y'all were y'all in the truck or well we were actually in two trucks we rode in one truck okay. and then we rode in uh, another truck some one was the black one and one was the white one that was out there okay. As you can tell, there was a lot of vehicular action at Moselle, and vehicular action tends to leave a lot of different tire marks. Next, Sled asks Alec if he knows what kind of weapons he has. This goes back to what we told you earlier about Creighton's exhaustive inventory of guns. Creighton not only was showing the jury that this is a family with a lot of expensive weapons that have scopes and lights and all sorts of gadgetry on them, they were also easily accessible and loaded and ready to go. They had a ton of ammo and they did a lot of shooting for fun. Just outside the family's gun room, in fact, Sled found at least five cartridges that the state says match the cartridges from the 300 blackout that killed Maggie. On Wednesday, we found out those five cartridges were from April 2021, when Paul and a friend shot that weapon, the one that would later kill Maggie, outside the family's gun room. Another thing, Creighton is showing how there were potentially guns all over the property the night of June 7, 2021, including at the kennel. When Alec talks to Sled about the 300 blackouts, he says he doesn't remember if Paul had one or not. The defense wants the jury to believe that the only 300 blackout the family owned was confiscated by Sled that night. They also want the jury to believe that Paul's habit of leaving guns laying around and at friends' houses is what ultimately led to the real killer getting their hands on that gun and using it to kill Maggie. Did y'all keep any guns out at the uh, kennels? He didn't keep guns out there, but there were always guns out there. Okay. You know? Um, I mean, and I'm gonna be honest with you, we were all a little bit bad about it, but Paul was the worst. You know, he was the worst. 
So this is where I'd like to stop for the two gunmen theorists. People who have based their opinion that there were two gunmen simply on the fact that two different weapons were used that night and one person, two guns is hard to understand. But in Alex's own words, there were generally guns down at the kennels, which again adds some mystery as to why he needed to go back to the house that night to retrieve a weapon. He would, he would leave a gun out there? He would leave anything anywhere. And, you know, it was not unusual for there to be guns out there. Did y'all take the... Um... But, the, like, I can tell you that, I mean, they told me that a 300 blackout was used in this. I, that 300 blackout, you know, it was... It was not out there. Interesting, right? The man who just said that Paul left guns everywhere, who just said that there were generally guns at the kennels and they were scattered about, who said earlier that he had been out riding with Paul looking for hogs, which Paul tended to hunt with a 300 blackout, who said he can't remember being at the kennels that night at all, and only, quote, maybe we were out there during the afternoon riding around, but he wasn't sure, who said he was at the ball games that weekend with his family, and who we heard stayed at the Edisto Beach House that weekend, was suddenly certain that the weapon that killed his wife was not at the kennels that night. So Paul, Paul said that one um, was stolen or, or lost, and it was some time ago. Did, was that reported anywhere? It wasn't officially reported because I wasn't totally convinced it was stolen. Okay. You know, as opposed to lost, but... I mean, you know, I mean, I, there were people told about it. Yeah. I know that I told John Beddingfield about it. Um, I know that I told some other local officers about it, you know, just in case it turned up in a drug thing. Okay. But I didn't do an official report. Okay. <laughs> The, and the the two that you, you bought for the boys, that each one of them had one, and the one Paul lost, is that the only ones that you you, you have? Well, I'm going to tell you this. I thought we replaced I thought that Paul got another one replaced, but Buster said we didn't. But I was certain that we did. I mean, my memory is it's been gone for a substantial while, too. Remember, there were three 300 blackouts. Alec purchased two of them around Christmas 2016, one for Buster and one for Paul. But Paul's went missing in 2017. There was another 300 blackout purchased for Paul in 2018, which Maggie picked up. To keep me straight, let's do this. Buster's 300 Blackout is the 2016 gun. That one is black and had a thermal scope on it. It is now considered state's evidence. The one Paul used is the 2018 gun, and sometimes he did use his brother's gun. The state said that the 2018 gun was the one that was used to kill Maggie. That one is now missing. 
On Tuesday, DNR officer and gun salesman and Murdoch cousin John Bedingfield testified to the existence of the 2018 gun, but it turns out that cousin John could not find the paperwork for that third 300 blackout sale, the gun that killed Maggie. But investigators were able to trace the sale back to him through a canceled check of Maggie's, meaning Maggie appears to have bought the gun that was used to end her life. Alex's equivocation on this is either because he truly doesn't remember or he's not sure what records existed to show that the family did in fact have two 300 blackouts. Uh, and you say you, you thought you replaced it after he lost it for I'm, another one, but, I'm all but, but Buster says you didn't. I believe that we did. Okay. I mean, there'll be a record of that, won't it? Should be, yes, sir. <clears throat> I know we replaced it. But, you know, I wouldn't, I, I know we replaced it because I wouldn't replace it again. Maybe I just think that now, I don't know. But I'm certain we replaced it. Next, Sled asks Alec about C.B. Rowe, the groundskeeper he told Detective Rutland might be a suspect in this. The same groundskeeper that Curtis Eddie Smith had told investigators that he had heard was having an affair with Maggie and had gotten into a gunfight with Paul and Maggie the night of June 7, 2021. Alec tells Sled that he hasn't yet fired C.B. Rowe, but also that he doesn't think that C.B. Rowe is the suspect. Sled then tells Alec that they don't believe these shootings were random. And, you know, and, and I'm just... Being in law enforcement for so long and and working these type cases, and I don't know the Islington era, area, but talking to Collin County and seeing the property and how isolated it is, finding somebody that's just going to randomly come up there that late at night that doesn't know the property, you know, that's... So, of course, I have to look within and then start working my way out. So you feel like it's not random? You feel like it's intentional? I mean, planned? I, I don't know what to feel right now. And I, I, I hate to say that. I, I don't know what to feel right now. So do y'all have any good clues? Sled tells Alec that they're still waiting on the autopsy report, that they've taken a number of DNA swabs, collected a number of cartridges and shells and weapons from Moselle, and interviewed about 100 people so far. Alec thanked them for all the work they were doing. They get a DNA swab from him in that car, and then they ask if he knows Paul's passcode. Now, we found out in testimony on Tuesday, it took until March 2022 for investigators to access Paul's phone. They used the latest technology to crack it, but ultimately, a member of the Secret Service decided to try something. He tried Paul's birth date, and it worked. But here's Alec on the passcode and how super, super secret it was. And that's why, you know, who who um, um, Paul was with. I want to tell you one thing while I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Paul was really an incredibly intuitive little dude mm -hmm. and i mean he was like a little detective and i mean paul would you know he you, you know what yeah. i'm trying to say yeah 
which leads me to let's go back to Paul right quick while we're on him. So we have his phone. Do you know his passcode? I don't. And I'm going to tell you this right now. There's a few people I can point you to. Yeah. But I can tell you that he was super, super, super secretive with that. I mean, cell phone. I asked his brother if he knew it. Did, did the ones that they got the other day didn't when you work? Did y'all get any the other day? Not for Paul's phone. No. Okay. I know they got I know they got Maggie's code. I know network. Maggie's. Yeah. And and, and it <clears throat> works. Or it worked. Yeah. Uh, I I've not gotten it, but there's a lot of people out moving parts that you know may have gotten that information. So we'll follow up on it. If you, you believe somebody gave us a code for Paul's a possible code for Paul's? Uh you know, maybe it was Maggie's. I don't know. Okay. But I'll find out. I'll, I will try to find out Paul's code. Okay. But it will surprise me greatly if somebody knows it. Alec tells him again about his nap and when he last saw Maggie and Paul. When, when, when you and Paul got back to the house, Miss Maggie's there and y'all eat supper, which has been prepared. And you say you said you laid down and, and took a little nap, and when you got up, Maggie and Paul was gone. Or did they leave when you laid down? Or before I, laid down? I believe that I, I'm not. I'm not sure. But they weren't there when you woke up around the nine o'clock mark or so when when you made the call to Maggie to to let her know you was going to your no. office. Nobody was in that house when I, when I left. So, I'm just trying to narrow that. The, the last time that Paul and you saw Paul and Maggie's when y'all were eating supper. Yes, sir. Sled then asks Alec how he tried to turn Paul's body, whether it was away from the kennels, which Alec said it was. Sled also asks if Paul and Maggie were left or right-handed and where they usually stored their phones. Alec jokes that Paul stored his phone in his hand, but then elaborated that he also kept it in his pocket and truck. For the question about Maggie, Alec pauses and doesn't answer. The agent fills in the blank for him and says, anywhere she could? Alec says, yes, sir, then immediately asks this next question. Did y'all get fingerprints on her phone? I haven't gotten that back yet. Finally, the June 10th, 2021 interview contains a moment that has caused quite a reaction from people. Some people hear Alex say one thing and other people hear him say another thing. And, and you definitely saw a traumatic picture and, uh, and I know it's not hard. <laughs> Or not, not easy. I know it's hard. Um, and sitting there talking today is, is tough. It's just so bad. I did it so bad. This is where Creighton stopped the recording and asked sled agent Jeff Croft, who was present during this interview with Ellig that day, what he heard. When you asked the defendant about the traumatic picture that he saw, Paul and Maggie, what did he say? 
It's just so bad. I did him so bad. I did him so bad. Yes, sir. The debate over whether Ellick says I or they raged on social media Monday evening. One talking head opined that Ellick said they and that the confusion might be coming from his southern accent. On Tuesday, Jim Griffin cross-examined Special Agent Croft, a man who grew up in the same area Ellick did and has a similar, if not same, southern accent. And you testified that Alex said on the video captured by audio that it was so bad, I did him so bad. That's what you testified to yesterday. Yes, sir, that is what I testified to. Now, are you 100% confident that Alex said, I did him so bad, rather than they did him so bad? I am 100% confident in what I heard and I interpreted him as saying. Jim asks him why no one followed up on what some might construe to be an unintentional confession. A number of people have told us that at this point in the investigation, sled agents were trying to keep Alec talking and it would have been a bad idea for them to challenge Alec on that statement at that point in time. Jim continued to press Agent Croft on this. In an August 11, 2021 interview, sled agents didn't follow up on that alleged confession from Ellick either. He mentioned to Agent Croft that after hearing Ellick say this, they then moved on to have a seemingly casual conversation about funeral arrangements that day on June 10th. Jim asked Agent Croft whether he had prepared for his cross-examination today by reviewing the court transcript. Croft said no. Here again, the defense loses their narrative about sled being aggressive and targeting Ellick. Next, Jim replays the clip in real time and asks Croft whether he hears it their way. Did you hear now, they or I? I will still testify that my hearing, I hear I. Then, Jim slows the tape down in one of the creepiest moments of this murder trial. Your Honor, we'd like to play it again at one-third speed to slow it down. It's just the same. Thank you. Speed, foundation laid for who's manipulating it, how it's being manipulated. Uh, I think uh, obviously we have it in real time, but there would have to be some additional foundation. One third speed. Sir, I did not. Okay. So, like we said, a lot has happened and a lot is happening. On Wednesday, as we were wrapping up this episode, SLED's cell phone expert testified. We will unpack a lot of those details in a later episode. But there were a few big revelations I want to mention again. The first is, as we noted before, Ellick appears to have deleted his call log from June 4th, 2021 through 10.27 p.m. June 7th, 2021, the night of the murders. 
The second is that a video on Paul's phone sent to his friend Rogan Gibson places Ellick at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. that night. This obviously contradicts Ellick's alibi. The defense appears to have landed some points on cross-examination of this witness regarding the movement of Ellick and Maggie's phone that night. Like I said, we have a lot to unpack there and want to look at all of the data further before we tell you about that. But we can already see that this is information that the two gunmen theorists are happy to hear. Later that afternoon, Paul's best friend, Rogan Gibson, who has known the Murdochs his entire life and considered them a second family, testified that it was Ellick's voice he heard in the background during the four-minute phone call with Paul down at the kennels. He also testified that he was not aware of the replacement of the 300 blackout that Paul got in 2018. That even though the guns were left around Moselle unsecured, he doesn't recall of ever hearing of anything getting stolen. And that Paul was never seriously threatened by anyone in connection to the boat crash. Then Paul's close friend, Will Loving, delivered several bombshells. The first is that there were absolutely two 300 blackouts, and he had not heard that one was missing as the defense maintains before the murders. He testified that in April 2021, he and Paul went to Ace Hardware and bought a scope to put on Paul's 300 blackout and that they stood outside of the Murdoch's gun room at Moselle to shoot it. This is exactly where SLED agents found those spent cartridges that matched the ones from the gun that killed Maggie. Under cross-exam though, Will said that he did not use or see Paul's 300 blackout after that. On redirect, the state again played a Snapchat video of Ellick and Paul driving around Moselle the night he was murdered. Will Loving said it was from around 7 p.m. Creighton hopped on the opportunity and asked him about the clothes Ellick was wearing that night. He said, long sleeve and a shirt and those particular shoes? Will said, yes, sir. Meaning on the evening of the murders, Ellick was wearing different clothes from what he had on when the first deputy arrived on the scene. We expect the defense will have a who cares response to this. And we expect the prosecution will visit this original Ellick outfit again. But we don't know where this will land with the jury. Because of right now, it doesn't appear that anyone asked Ellick about whether or not he had changed his clothes that night. Lastly, Wednesday ended with the biggest Creighton energy we have seen yet. In an effort to show that in May 2021, the Murdochs were a happy and loving family with no murderous members, Jim Griffin played a video from Ellick's birthday party. Chris Wilson was at that party, and Creighton seized on that. In redirect, he replayed the video, and here's what happened. Before you do that, go back to, the, to your video if you would, please. Can y'all turn that screen around for me, please? Who's that guy in the green shirt? Do you know? That's Chris Wilson. Do you know Chris Wilson's relationship to Alec Wilson or Alec Murdoch? Yeah, I think they're best friends. Best friends. Best friends should do each other right. Isn't that correct? And then he did this. 
And then he did this. Did you know anything about Alex's finances? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about his law practice? Um, no, I did not. Did you know anything about where he gets his money? No, I did not. Did you know anything about where he was spending his money? No, I did not. Did you know anything about what his bank account balances were? No, sir, I did not. Did you know anything about the debt that he was carrying? Do you know anything about that? No, sir. Did you know the specific things that were going on in the boat case the week that Paul and Maggie were murdered? No, sir. Do you know anything about civil discovery and, and how it can expose financial information? No, sir. Do you know anything at all about him being confronted on June 7th, 2021 about... Object. Did you know anything about him being confronted on the morning of June 7th, 2021 about $792,000 of missing fees from his law firm? Objection, Your Honor. But totally improper. Objections overruled. Did you know anything about that? No, I did not. You know, any of the facts of those things that I just asked you about? No, sir. Creighton took a chance, knowing that Jim would be there with a hot and fast objection, which Judge Newman overruled. And it looks like he was able to get Ellick's financial crimes admitted on the record. Something Dick and Jim had, something Dick and Jim fought hard against. And that is it for this week. We have a long way to go and a long list of witnesses to hear from, so it's hard to know where this trial might end up, but we will be there for every step of the way. Stay tuned and stay in the sunlight. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, produced by my husband, David Moses, and Liz Farrell is our executive editor. From Luna Shark Productions.